This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Chris Williamson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks, man. That intro is dope. You Dude, like it? Dude, it's so sick. You're getting me hyped up. I want to work out. <laughs> I'm drinking a scotch. Uh, I know that you've been off alcohol for, what, 1,000 days or something? I did a break. I'm back on now, but I did a break for 1,000 days, yeah. I'm a club promoter. I have been for a long time. I've been around a lot of nightlife. And I just wanted to do more with my time. I got to sort of the end of my 20s and thought, is this really all that there is I, I never felt like i had enough time to make meaningful progress toward my goals and i realized that i was only drinking maybe once every two weeks or three weeks but i'd be pretty hungover for maybe the next day and then only really at 80 percent of capacity the day after that mm. blah blah so i took a break uh did six months off loved it started drinking again wasn't that fussed did another six months and then ended up committing to a thousand days eventually and um yeah it was the most productive periods that i've ever had it's like just supercharges everything sleep was improved uh, mental cognition was improved my confidence went increased because i couldn't buttress myself in social situations with alcohol anymore mm. it was great man and then i'm back on it now i'm really enjoying reintroducing uh drinking again now with a, a very different sort of view and i'm a super lightweight so it takes me like one and a half beers to get a but it's like being 17 again sneaking sneaking beers out of your parents fridge but i mean if you were so clear-headed um during that phase why go back onto alcohol because i think that there are advantages to drinking as well i noticed that i was missing out on some social events because you you struggle to get onto people's level no matter how much charisma you force feed yourself you just can't get on the level of someone that's three tequilas deep um so mm. I want it. And also there's certain experiences, right? The 4th of July on Broadway in Nashville, watching a quarter of a million people lose their mind to country music. I want to raise a beer. So I, d I wasn't ideological about mm. sobriety. It was just a productivity tool. The same way as getting things done might be, or having a morning routine or doing gratitude journaling. It was just a productivity tool to me. I wasn't ideological about it. And I, I also think that there's advantages to reintroducing it too. Okay, but then why the thousand days? Was it just a random number? It was supposed to be 18 months and then COVID hit. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to break this just so I can have a beer in the house with my housemate when I can't mm. leave. And then it just kept going, kept going, kept going. It got to two years, two and a half years. And I thought, oh, well, a thousand days is a cool number. I did a YouTube video, <laughs> did, it for, did it all for the YouTube video, did a YouTube video about it. And now I can always say, you know, when I'm talking to people, about the fact that I've got this background in club promo. I can mm. also talk about my experience of a thousand days sobriety. Do you find that doing a podcast or YouTube videos helps keep you accountable? Yes. Yeah. It, th there is a an external judge, adjudicator, mm. that is rigorously, very rigorously checking what you say today against yes. what you said yesterday. And they are brutal uh unforgiving yes but i also think that if you can cultivate uh, a relationship with the audience where they know that you're not the finished article there are certain podcasters and, and, and youtubers mm. out there that posit themselves as authorities and that's fine that's great you know like andrew huberman for instance I, he's the scientist i want him to display the science to me as accurately as possible by no means am i a finished article i'm failing through all of the stuff that i try and go through with the audience as well and i'll make mistakes and it means that people are a lot more forgiving you know you you fuck up or you say a thing a year ago that you say something different to now and you go well my views have changed i'm not you know i'm learning out loud i'm practicing in public i'm failing mm. in front of every single person here um yeah so it's, it's not as brutal as it could be but yeah they are still uh ruthless just to continue with that war theme um from the beginning of the show you're on a battlefield chris you're on a battlefield okay where are you positioned oh that is a good question fuck being in the vanguard man i'm not i'm not first over the breach i'm not about that i'm much more of a strategic 
I don't have the patience to be a sniper. Where would I be? I feel like I feel like I'd probably be one of the engineers that would be organizing some of the logistics back of house. My executive function's pretty good. I'd be able to look at battle plans, relay some stuff back up. I don't want to be the guy that has to manage too many people. I want to be siloed off. So I'd be in one of the dudes controlling the drones from above, relaying some stuff back, right, troop movements over here. But fuck being, don't want to be a sniper and have to poo in a bucket. Don't want to be the first person over the breach that gets shot. Uh, don't want to be the guy that has to manage everything. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be culpably deniable off on the side. That's me. What is your background? Okay, so I'm a club promoter. I mentioned I went to university and was skint, so I started up a business running club nights. 18 to 21-year-olds, thousands of them getting drunk every week, and that's still what I do now. That's still my bread and butter. Uh, I did some reality TV. I got kind of captured by that young party boy lifestyle. I went on Take Me Out. I did the first season of Love Island. I was a DJ. I was a commercial model. Like any like, List the things that a fuckboy would do and that is that was the life plan that I took basically through my 20s. And then I came out of Love Island reality TV thing and had this sort of epiphany where I'm like, look, is this really all that I'm built for? Is this the most I have to offer the world? You know, getting people drunk on Jaeger bombs on a Thursday night for one pound each or whatever. And decided that I wanted to try and find something that had a bit more meaning that led me toward doing the podcast because I enjoy talking to people and I enjoyed the few guesting spots I'd done. And then four years later, Modern Wisdom, which is my show, is 420 episodes deep. Guests like Jordan Peterson, Seth Godin, Aubrey Marcus, James Clear, Robert Green, Ryan Holiday. And yeah, we are growing faster than I ever could have thought. It still blows my mind that anybody wants to listen. Um, but if I didn't get paid and if it didn't make any money and if no one listened, I'd still do it. I'd still have these conversations. And that's it, man. And it just feels like it feels like being on a, a rocket ship and just holding on and not really knowing what direction it's going in and just hoping for the best but it's really cool it's the first time that i've ever done anything in my life which wasn't a commercial pursuit it wasn't for money it wasn't because it had the potential to make me a millionaire or whatever it was just something that i love to do mm. and bizarrely doing that has ended up being the most successful thing that i could have done in any case despite success not being one of the criteria that i was trying to chase how do you balance the the nightclub life with having conversations like this? Uh, so I've extracted myself from the business quite a lot. So there's a lot of guys that work below us and that means I, I don't have to do what I used to, which was be awake until three in the morning, three or four nights a week, and then wake up the next day and have some cereal and a Budweiser and get back in the office and go again. A lot of the boys handle that now, which is brilliant. But it's also an interesting insight into human behavior. Like there's not many situations where people have where they're less encumbered than at 1.30 a.m. after a bunch of drinks listening to some music. So you get to see some interesting sites. The way that it works is you create a portfolio of events to target different markets. So you might have the Thursday that we run is cheap and cheerful. It's a lot of funky house and stuff early on. And then it gets into ABBA and S Club 7 and Cheese later on. It's kind of <laughs> sing-along, cringy stuff. But it's you know classic like young kids things snog someone in the corner go home throw up in the bucket that sort of stuff the friday is a lot more the upstairs is a tech house room downstairs is like cool party r&b party hip-hop and party house so we just we pick different markets there are some promoters that pigeonhole themselves into mm -hmm. one type of music policy but we we've never found that to be too successful so we just do whatever we think fits the brand on the day of the week at the venue at the price point and everything kind of cohesives together to hopefully make a product that people want to go to. What's currently on your playlist? So personally, I work to a lot of Deep House. Anjuna Deep is fucking phenomenal. And if anyone wants some good, a good playlist of music that they can constantly listen to and is just chill, Anjuna Deep do one every single Thursday. It's phenomenal. Uh, when I'm training, it's like gangster rap, like hardcore gangster rap. Uh, as the whitest man, the whitest man in the UK, uh, listening to gangster rap um, or metal, hardcore metal, metalcore, um, and then Eskim Eskimo cool boy. No, <laughs> no, not that bad. Um, <laughs> but country, a lot of country, especially when I'm traveling. Big fan of country music. 
so across the board, dude. I think that a lot of promoters are like that. We kind of have to keep our fingers in mm. lots of pies. And even though none of those policies are policies that we play, you still get this sort of impression of not really being too pigeonholed. Collective effervescence, which I wasn't aware of until a lady on my podcast told me about it, which is when you get people together and they feel the same sort of vibe, they start to act in unison despite the fact that they're not coordinating together. So if you, perfect example, you watch a DJ set at a big festival or something like that, and people will cry at the same moments, they'll put their hands in the air at the same moments, they'll dance at the same moments. So yeah, part of that's the rhythm of the music, but more than that is the, this sort of unfelt sense that cohesives everyone together. And that collective effervescence is a word that we've been trying to name for ages, which is just the vibe, right? What's the feel of the, the party like? Does the party feel good tonight? Does the party feel bad? Is there a cool group of girls in that's making the dance floor? Or is there a group of guys that's been really aggressive and kind of turning everyone off? And you go downstairs and you realize that the collective effervescence is either operating well or operating badly. So you're right. Music is, it's the, the fabric that everything else kind of sits on top of. And when the music is right, you can fix a lot of problems with a bad event. But when the music's wrong, it doesn't really matter how busy or good the event is, you can't fix it. Tell me about South African music. What's South African music like? Now, here's a term that you've probably never heard. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, Zef, Z-E-F. No. And have you heard of the Antwoord? No. Zef. It's incredibly low-class white trash. Okay, so... I love it. I love it already. And Get me some uh, of that fucking Zef on. Yeah, there is something that's universal, especially given the fact that we're very uh, isolated bizarrely despite the fact that we're really connected i don't know anything about what's going on in south africa unless it's a catastrophe i don't know anything about what's going on in australia unless it's a catastrophe but mm. the only time that you ever see stuff about other countries is if there's a nightmare occurring so to have something in there that that feels like it binds us together is probably a pretty good idea i mean living in south africa right now is weirdly a blessing in disguise because we're pretty much a failed state when you have an efficient government in a in a situation like like we are seeing right now around the world what you don't want is actually a government that's pretty good <laughs> yeah actually so you're you're saying that the the incompetence is a hedge yes. against an authoritative government because they're so incompetent they can't deliver yes. their authoritarianism fine fine maybe we need to not campaign for like bigger or smaller government maybe we need shitter government liberal and conservative matter a hell of a lot less now mm. because you're trying to fight against authoritarianism yeah, I suppose so. So the up versus down mm. uh, axis is much more important than the left and right. It's strange to have conversations with lots of different people and be told by the powers that be. And I, I see it a lot with books and stuff that have been released, how to have difficult conversations, 10 ways to broach this topic in a way that's not going to get you kicked off the Thanksgiving table, whatever it might be. And yet, for the most part, you sit down with someone, 420 times i've sat down with someone over the last four years i've never had a kickoff with anyone once you know we disagree mm. on things but because of the frame that we put around the conversation because we know that we're both there in good faith we're both contributing to try and understand the world better together i want to know what you know that i don't know you want to know what i know that you don't know and yeah i i think that a lot of the time there's wisdom in individuals and there's madness in crowds and it's when you start to scale people up into social groups that the truth that you know as a person gets bastardized by being around other people mm. and you start to see your own understanding of the world get compromised simply because you're with other people and maybe they also have a good understanding of the world and simply by being with you simply by whatever weird group dynamics and and ways that we feel like we need to negate something that we think we know in order to try and adhere to a group norm that may not even actually exist yeah. Um, yeah, it's very strange how that happens. Everybody, apart from the people that purposefully are saying know, knowing lies, everyone is convinced of their own point of view. If you show someone an optical illusion, up until the point at which they see the optical illusion, they're convinced of one particular point of view. And then as soon as you show it to them and you say, well, actually, because of the way that the angles are on the end of this, this line's it's the same length as that one. And they go, oh, holy fuck. And then you, you can't unsee that. Mm. And people, a lot of the time, treat others' points of view not like 
something that they are convinced of which we need to understand in order to better get a, grap a, a grasp of how it is that they've arrived at that point they see it as this person knows what i know and is willfully choosing to disbelieve that in mm. place of something that i know and they know is wrong that, that's not how it works and this is why you see one of the reasons one of many reasons why you see really aggressive vitriolic discussions online because nobody can bear to believe that other people don't know what they know i have been inspired by a number of your conversations that you've had um i told you recently that i i really enjoyed your one about um uh, 10 i think it was 10 recommended books I was, I was listening to that on the on the on my plane flight between cape town and johannesburg a few months ago and i wanted to ask you what is your favorite book that's a good question um, the one that I've enjoyed the most over the last couple of years was The Forgotten Highlander by Alistair Urquhart, which I think was in that list. And it's kind of like Man's Search for Meaning if it was set in the Second World War in Japan. Uh, Scottish uh, army officer or army soldier uh, is in Singapore. He gets captured by the Japanese when they enter World War II. He is subjected to horrific torture for the best part of four years, locked in a tin box in the sun to die, doesn't die after two days, builds the bridge over the River Kwai, catches every tropical disease known to man, still doesn't die, gets locked in a tin box and floated out in the middle of the sea for 100 days with no food or water, somehow doesn't die. Working on a... Uh, that gets that boat gets torpedoed by a USS Marine uh, submarine, doesn't die. Uh, then gets captured again, gets knocked off his feet by the bomb blast from Nagasaki, still doesn't die, and then keeps quiet for half a century until he finally writes his memoir as a call to arms to bring the Japanese to account for being cunts at the war. And, dude, it's just so, so life-affirming to read the, the limits that people can go through and think it just frames all of your problems in a, a a very sort of stark and brutal way and you realize that the fact that you were stuck in traffic this morning and lost your shit mm -hmm. or that you thought you were going to get this many plays on this podcast episode but you actually only got this many you just go at least i haven't had dysentery constantly for the last four years um but it's that that book's dope that that was really really good uh and i've been exposed to a ton of stuff that i've really enjoyed but that one sticks out it's very stoic yeah yeah it's very much uh who was the guy that got captured in the Vietnam War? James Stockdale. Very similar to the story that Ryan Holiday talks about to do with him. Someone needs to write a book about James Stockdale, by the way, because the only way that we know his story, this guy who got captured in the Vietnam War, his plane gets shot down. Um, he breaks, I think, both of his legs during the fall, uh, during the... Um, uh, what is it? Ejector, once the ejection out of the plane. And... Uh, as he's coming down over enemy territory, he's reciting Epictetus to himself. He's reciting <laughs> Stoic philosophy. And this is before Ryan Holiday's made it popular, right? He's just come across this guy at his studies in university. And um, for four years, five years, he's a prisoner of war, constantly tortured, people around him dying. And um, he just stays Stoic throughout the whole thing. So someone needs to write a book about that because the only way you can do it is through kind of his own memoir which is like a white paper it's free online but it's just not good enough so someone needs to do that perspective is so powerful isn't it being able to frame and contrast what you're experiencing up against what other people have experienced is a superpower i have, <laughs> I have a buddy george who um when he's feeling down if he wakes up on a morning and he's feeling down he lies in bed and imagines what it would be like to have no legs for five minutes that's it just stares at the ceiling imagines what it would be like to have no legs and he's like you know what if i do that the rest of my day goes fine that's true because for the most part we compare our lives where we see ourselves fail mm. on a from a front row seat we blunder we're incompetent we're distracted we do things that we shouldn't we don't do things that we should and we see that very human very mortal very fallible very fragile version of us get compared with competent, wonderful, colossal 
creatures on YouTube or Instagram or podcasts or in the news or whatever it might be. Mm. And we compare where we are to them as opposed to comparing where we are to where we could be, which is a hell of a lot worse. There's a lot further to fall than there is to grow. And if you were able to compare where you are now to where you were only a couple of years ago, if you're growing in the right way, the mindset and the insights that you have about life and the way that you see the world, those would be things that you would dream of being able to have only five years ago. You wouldn't be able to believe the level of calm, composure, the relationship you have with your emotions, the competence that you have at your chosen pursuit at work, the relationship that you have with your family, all of these things develop so mm. well. But because we don't have an ability to go back and sample what it was like to be us five years ago, availability bias just wipes all of that away and we forget the progress that we make. I always thought it'd be cool, you know, you take a photo and the photo is a um, representation of a place in time. I always thought it would be cool if there was a way to go back and re-experience what the texture of your mind was like from a, a particular time. So if you could just drop back into five years ago, Jeremy, Jeremy's mind and think, fucking hell, this was a mess. I would look at all of these weird things that I was obsessed with, these thought loots and ruminations and ambient anxiety and all of that stuff, but we can't. So we forget the progress that we make. When was your Damascus moment? I mean. I think everybody has a Damascus moment in their life at least once. What's a Damascus moment? I, su I suppose being red pulled, but I, I hate saying that uh, because it's got lots of political connotations to it. But where you have dramatically changed the course of your journey in life. Okay, so um, I mentioned I did this reality TV thing, Love Island. Mm. And up until that point, as a lot of young guys might do. I'd absorbed my values from the culture around me, from what my friends had told me I was supposed to find cool. And that culminated with me basically playing in the World Cup final of being a party boy, which is getting on a reality TV show, which is broadcast to millions of people five nights a week on a you know terrestrial TV channel, like one of the main channels in the UK. Uh, and I got myself out there and I'd done the training and I'd got the tan and the tiny swim shorts and you know, you're there supposed to be having this time flirting with girls and doing whatever. And I realized that I really wasn't meant to fit in there. I'd kind of gone away and I was still in love with this girl back home, but I hadn't, I hadn't really worked out whether, how I was going to talk to her. And I'm like, I'm on a dating show and I've, I'm sort of still in love with this girl. And I just, it was all, all of the things that I thought I was built for party boy, extroverted, big name on campus, big dick around town, all that shit was it wasn't me and it didn't it wasn't like i had an existential crisis on love island but that was the pebble that started the avalanche right that was the gateway drug that told me you thought that you were meant to be here and you've spent a month with no phone no internet no books no friends no connection to the outside world or family you haven't been able to hide from the fact that you're not supposed to be here that you thought that this was your people but it's not that's a problem. Problem requires solution. Solution is try and dig through all of mm. the layers of culture and the way you've dealt with past trauma and the societal norms that you've inculcated and all of that shit, all the values and things that didn't serve you anymore and try and dig and dig and dig and dig until you hit something that's a bit more solid and a bit firmer. And that was the majority of the time after that. And it was fortunate for me timing wise that that was as Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and Rogan's show was kicking off and uh, Alanda Botton from the School of Life was releasing a video every week. And it just meant that I was I was able to consume a lot of information that really, really helped to clear my thinking. Um, so I guess that that was it. I mean, not many people go on reality TV to be catapulted toward a life of integrity and virtue. But for me, that was kind of what happened. It was a that was my red pill, right? It just happened to be on TV in front of a few million people. Tell me a little bit about that show. Um, I've heard, I mean, I've heard about it, but it's not something I'm very familiar with. It's a dating show. You go on, you live in a villa uh, for six weeks. Cameras are on you 24 hours a day, and then they edit that down into about 45 minutes of content per day. 
but it's rapid. So what happens on Tuesday gets aired on Tuesday night. Well, Wednesday night, sorry. And then so on and so forth. And you're there to try and find a partner. You There are half the number of beds as there are people. So you are constantly uh, like coupled up, they call it, with a particular person. And it's a complete cultural behemoth in the UK now. So I did the first season, which was just like a a full cost dress rehearsal that ended up being broadcast and then season two was 10 times bigger and season three was 10 times bigger again and so on and so forth and now you have tommy fury the guy that was supposed to fight jake paul he was on it he was one of the winners and his partner is also one of the winners and she's this like super famous influencer designer person now and you know people go on and they really really do just get gifted millions and millions of followers and clout um but it's an interesting experience there's not many things that you can do that only a couple of hundred people have done now. So, for instance, fewer people have been on Love Island than been to the top of Everest. Now, I'm not not equating the two, uh, not saying that they are comparable. However, there aren't many things that you can do that not many people have done anymore. Uh, so, Love Island was one of those YOLO moments. What What are some things that you would like to do? bucket list more traveling uh, i have a huge wanderlust but because i've been a businessman since i was an adult you know six months into being an adult i started a business and i've never stopped running it for 16 years so that's always been a, a big responsibility of mine and then i've continued to add that on top and i'm very grateful for the fact that it's created a routine of work like a cadence that i'm used to in terms of how hard i work and how often but it also stops you from traveling. Traveling would be dope. Um, never jumped out of a plane, never done a bungee jump. Just like basic bro stuff like that. I would like to go and see either the Arctic or the Antarctic. I'm a big fan of stark environments. I went to Iceland. I love sort of really brutal nature. I think that there's something incredibly, you know, beautiful nature is nice, but brutal nature is also nice in the same way that uh, reading about a guy that gets captured as a prisoner of war is as well. There's something like reaffirming. I think that awe and dread are two emotions that, mm. first off, we miss a lot of in the modern era, but also that I really resonate with. I love looking up at the night sky. I also love standing on the edge of a cliff and just any experience that's going to give me more of that. Um, also, another thing is that people often complain about the fact that life seems to go quicker as they get older, but anyone that understands the first line of relativity knows that time always moves at the same speed. It is moving at exactly the same pace now as it was when you were three years old, as it will be when you're 90 years old. The only difference is your interpretation. And because time passes at the same rate, what people mean when they say, I don't know how time is moving so quickly is I don't remember where the time went. So people do nothing memorable with their days and then complain about the fact that the days are forgotten. So for me, the goal increasingly is to try and make the most of my minutes you know in three generations time no one's going to remember my name in a hundred years time i'm going to be gone and dust and earth worm food in the ground right there is a brief window of consciousness where i get to experience the best of whatever this world has to offer to me and every time every moment that i don't spend doing that that i don't spend connecting with people with trying to do something that fulfills me and makes my life better and more meaningful that feels like a waste. And I understand why people, a lot of them, my friends, are away from this, like really what sounds like a serious approach to life, right? Like it sounds like there's this almost a, an existential sort of Damocles hanging over your head that, you know, if you don't make the most of every single second, then you're going to be wasting your life, bro. And why would you do that? But that given the fact that you only get one shot at this, that level of seriousness seems warranted to me, you know? And you're always going to fail that perfect idea. You're always going to spend one evening more than you wished on the couch watching Netflix. You're always going to press the snooze button one more time than you anticipated. But, you know, having that in your head, like, look, I, I should really be trying to make the most of my time because it is incredibly limited. It's a good reminder. And I think that trying to fill your time with intense, varied novel experiences are going to help when you look back to expand out those minutes. You know, you're never going to remember the drive to work. Your entire, every mm -hmm. single drive that you've had to work, all 
thousand journeys of them, however many it's been, get condensed down essentially into one memory. So try and not have that happen with everything else that you do. You know, try and not go home and just watch the same thing, sit in the same spot. Um, and yeah, living, as far as I can see, the goal of life is to live a life which in retrospect, you're glad you lived. And the closer that I can get to that, the better. So what drives you? I mean, why do you get up every morning? Right now, it's because I'm genuinely excited by the prospect of my show. I think that it can do an awful lot of good in the world. I did an episode with Jordan Peterson, which I can give you the link to, and you can put it in the show notes below or whatever. And that had a very, very tangible impact on a lot of people's lives based on the messages that I got. And, you know, I've been happening for a while, but when it happens with one thing, it's quite interesting because a lot of people say the same th stuff. So you get to see themes emerge. I also like the idea that something that I find fun can also be a personal development pursuit because a lot of the time, you know, it's a, it is a bit of a grind getting up and going to the gym, no matter how exciting the session is going to be, if it's 7am and it's cold outside, it's, it's just never going to be that fun. But there is nothing that I would rather do than have a conversation with someone at 6pm every evening. And the fact that this version of the simulation has allowed me to call that a job is, I, I, I don't know what's going on. So I'm excited to wake up. I'm excited to learn what it is that I'm going to learn about today, to speak to the person that I am, to refine the craft, to become better at conversing, to be more accurate, more precise with my thinking, more precise with my speech, and then to bring everybody else along for the ride. You know, the mm -hmm. little cult members group that we've got of Modern Wisdom, a couple of million people that listen to it every month, you know, they are people that are designing a life that they know is built for more. They're understanding how to be more effective, happier, healthier, better humans. And that just feels great. Like I've never had that connection. And I think that because I ran nightclubs for so long and was very close to the running, you know, I'm stood on the front door seeing the impact of somebody going in and going out. And people had fun, but it was very much hedonistic fun. Very few people received meaning from it. And then the first time that I did a podcast and someone messaged me and said, hey man, I'm a rugby player from Cumbria in the Northwest of the UK and I don't have any friends that understand me. I, it's quite a laddie culture. They don't get what I'm about, but when I listen to your podcasts, it feels like I'm not alone. It feels like I'm understood, like I'm seen by someone. And then you just, that happens thousands of times with those messages. And it made me realize that it was like taking a drink when you didn't know you were thirsty, that I'd been wanting to do something that felt meaningful and connected me to other people and made me really feel like I was contributing to the world. Not that club nights and, and party lifestyle and stuff doesn't, but it's not in the same way. And then you finally get that and it's very oddly, meaning is far more addicting than hedonism, even though people get addicted to hedonism. So I'm in a relationship at the moment, um, which means that uh, a bunch of my buddies used to call the podcast groundwork at scale. They said that, that was that was basically all it was. It was just a way to outsource and leverage groundwork um, so that you no longer needed to do it. Um, now, sadly, my, my show, at least on YouTube, not on Spotify or on audio, but on YouTube, it skews massively male. So unless I'm going gay, which isn't my intention, um, I am... I've chosen the right, you know, it's like the guys that start going to the gym and they think, oh, if I go to the gym loads, I'm going to become really attractive to girls. And then the only people that come up and compliment their physique are the other guys. They're like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> this is not what it was supposed to be. Um, it's definitely status, but mm. I think I've got as close as I can. In as much as I'm aware of my own biases, I think that I've managed to avoid being too trapped by them. But I know what you mean. Like everything, have you seen that Future Armor episode where they create sex robots and then the entire world just goes to a no, stop? I haven't it seen turns it. out that everybody, from the bus driver to the rocket scientist to the nurse to the doctor to everyone, was just doing stuff for sex. And then they create sex, really realistic sex robots, and then everyone stops. Michael Malice has been to North Korea, and there's a very interesting region of the world that I'd also like to see. Do you have a desire to go there at all? Hmm. I haven't. No. Um, I think that I'd get, it would be fascinating, but I wonder how uncomfortable it would be knowing that, you know, you're 
it would feel like being one of the guys in the animal the gold animal masks in squid game you know it would feel like observing a show that hides other people's suffering just for your pleasure um yeah it would be cool though would be cool i haven't yet seen squid game um i'm still recovering from handmaid's tale oh so i haven't seen handmaid's tale <laughs> is it worth it uh yes but maybe take a break after you've seen squid game because you can only handle so much dystopia trauma yeah fuck it is an interesting it's a very very interesting um perspective what was that film was it no more men or something i can't remember what it was it was where no women could get pregnant and then one woman managed to get pregnant it was a couple of years ago all of these ones about future dystopias it's so strange like when was the last time that we had a future film that was just good you know that was exciting or interesting like the jetsons like just mm. talking about flying cars i don't know how has covid impacted your your life and of course your career i mean nightclubs fucking shitty for nightclubs i can tell you that much not not ideal if you want to run a place where people put their tongues on other people's tongues a lot of the time so shut down the nightlife industry um for the first time ever as an adult i had a stable sleep and weight pattern which was weird uh i shit you not man fucking whatever 31 years old and for the first time ever I, I go to bed and wake up at the same time I'm like wow this is what it's like to be a normal person i just thought i was tired all the time it turned out i was just like on shift work so ruined nightlife uh i made a commitment to turn pro with the podcast in Stephen Pressfield language um, halfway through two summers ago. And uh, that involved going up to three times a week, committing to be the best version of myself that I can for the show. Um, and it was fantastic. Pa pandemic's not very good for most things, but for podcasting, it was pretty good. Plays went up, engagement went up, connection with the crowds and the audience went up. So that was it. And it's just been that day repeated for, you know two years which is weird because if you want to acquire a skill or build an audience or do anything that's that hard unless you get incredibly lucky with your timing or you have a big head start you're going to have to put the time in and that means you're probably going to have to constrain some of the stuff that you do outside of that you know you want to become a power lifter okay you're there's going to have to be a period where you don't do much else other than power lifting eat sleep train and then go again uh, and the same thing had to happen with podcasting there had to be a critical mass of audience channel size that i built up a skill set of being able to do the podcasts of renown and notoriety and prestige so that i could get the big guests on and then learning how to interact with them and all of all everything right and that just happened to align with when covid happened so it was good timing mm -hmm. from that respect i suppose and then we've come back and nightlife is back you've got a bunch of 18 year olds that have never been able to go out so they're keen to go out and party still get to keep the podcast audience so I'm blessed, like really, really, I hesitate to use that word a lot, but like really was blessed by the timing of that. You said powerlifting. Uh, unfortunately, I can't let that one slide because I had Mark Ripto on my on my show. Um, Why? What? <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> I've changed. The, the, there's a period, I think, up until about 25 or 30, where especially guys maybe that aren't, big naturally they want to feel powerful they want to build a physique that they think that women are going to find attractive uh, and they want to feel like a man right you want to turn your body from the thing that you were when you were 16 into the thing that you see on tv mm. that you want to be when you're 35 and yeah bodybuilding is a, a low barrier to entry for that but a lot of guys enter a manopause toward the end of their <laughs> 20s and that often involves them realizing look the training workouts that i do I, I can't actually do anything. I look good, but I can't actually do much. And then you see people, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, yoga, functional fitness, CrossFit, powerlifting, weightlifting, whatever it might be. But they, they dip out of bodybuilding. They get into Muay Thai and boxing and MMA um, because or they re-enter back into the club sport that they played when they were 17. Mm. Um, all of these things are, I think, because you start to realize that fitness is supposed to be about more than just looking good you're supposed to yeah. feel good and enjoy your your training 
so that was something that I had as well. Like I spent a lot of time look, trying to look good and then wanted to be genuinely fit to go along with it. And I mean, one of your focuses is performance. What in your mind, um, Chris, then constitutes good performance? And I'm not just speaking about your physicality. Getting as close to your potential as you can feels like a nice definition to use. That there is a capacity inside of you that you could reach in future and trying to gear your life toward maximizing that seems to me like a good definition of high performance. Now, the problem with that is that people have to make sacrifices in order to become great at something. In order to be the strongest man in the world, you're going to have to sacrifice social time and money and rest and uh, variations and adventure. Um, but then if you get to be the strongest man in the world and that's what's meaningful to you, then great. You know, to be a podcaster, I need to sacrifice two days a week to edit episodes and book guests. I need to sacrifice three afternoons a week to research and then record and, you know, all of that stuff. But that's what I want to do. So that's my chosen mm -hmm. pursuit. And I think a lot of the time before you decide to do something, you need to look at, do I genuinely want to do this? Why? What are the costs associated with it? Am I prepared to pay them? And if all of those things, if you can get through all of those steps, your goal then should be to turn yourself into a fucking husk to like empty the tank into whatever it is that you're doing. Decide, 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 decide. Okay, is this right? Can I do it? What are the prices that, that need to be paid for that? And then once you get to that point and you decide what the thing is, put your fucking foot down. Put your foot down and continue to go until the gas tank is absolutely empty. And I think that that is a fun way to live. It's a fun way to go about life. It's exciting to think I'm giving this everything that i can but how do you approach adversity okay what would the best version of you do here is that john peterson talks about this like be the be the man that can organize your father's funeral when he dies you know don't be the guy that is that is unable to do it because you've never done any self-work you've never got in touch with your emotions your relationship with the rest of the family is completely destroyed no You've touched on all of these points already. And when the time comes to bear a heavier load than you already do, then you have the capacity. Like, yes, adversity is going to come and discomfort is going to be there. And some of it's going to be chosen and some of it's going to be unchosen. There's a big difference between the grind and um, the turning yourself into a husk and emptying the tank on a mm. task that you choose and some catastrophe sideswiping your life out of nowhere. There's a big difference between those two, chosen adversity and unchosen adversity. Chosen adversity, you can use all of the buzzwords that you want in the world, right? That I've been talking about motivation and intrinsic and extrinsic and setting goals and quarterly reviews and blah, blah. When something comes in and completely knocks you for six, I ruptured my Achilles 18 months ago playing cricket for the first time in 10 years. Um, and that wasn't planned. That's unchosen adversity. Okay, I now have an injury that's going to take me 12 to 16 months to rehabilitate and I can't walk. I'm not going to be able to walk for three months. I can't drive. I'm no longer independent. And there's a pandemic. Okay, fuck, what do I do? Um, that's a very different sort of adversity. And you realize then, I think, how important it is to do internal work versus external stuff. Because how robust you are mentally plays into that. Mm. Whether you have a good relationship with people around you. And it kind of, it's like a, it reduces everything down. You know, it doesn't really matter about how many followers you've got on YouTube. It's do you have a friend that can come around and cook you dinner this evening? You know, do you have someone that can come and, and, and drop you off a, some flowers so that you don't feel as shitty about yourself? Um, so adversity, you know, it, it, it sucks at the time and you, you'd never have the perspective that you do after the fact. But when you look back on it, it really is the periods in which you're going to grow the most. And it's like such a cliche thing to say. But the fact is that every single period of my life where I've grown the most has been coming off the back of some sort of adversity or trauma. And most of it's been the ones that have been unchosen. So yeah, in the moment it's going to suck, but you can think then, fuck, after this, I know that I'm going to be a better person. I know that everything is going to improve because of this situation. Um, a parent dying and stuff like that, man, I don't know, I've got, I'm an only child and I've got two parents and I've never been around anyone that's died. So that's going to be something for me where I'm like, wow, 
I don't know I don't know how I'm going to deal with that but the goal should be that I'm as well prepared for that as possible with whatever relationships and emotional tools and insights I can get you are your habits right you are mm. just everything that you are your your body is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits your bank account is a lagging measure of your spending and earning habits mm. your relationship with your friends is a lagging measure of your socializing habits and so on and so on so all that we are really is just a sequence of tiny little micro actions that end up creating a person that you see in front of them even your actions your your accent sorry is an aggregate of all of the people that you've been around and all of the words that you've said word by word letter by letter you know uh whatever it is uh not phenotype what is it what is, what's the thing that they say when they're trying to teach children how to speak anyway those things vowel by vowel right every single step of the way you decide to break your break and make your accent that means that all you are is just a big walking conglomeration of of different habits so yeah you need to be very careful jordan peterson has this line where he says don't practice what you do not want to become because whatever it is that you do now is going to make whatever you do tomorrow more or less likely what is your favorite thing to talk about right now i'm enjoying talking about uh intergender dynamics there's a lot of imbalances in the dating market which are quite fascinating um women are going to outnumber men two to one at four-year u.s colleges by 2030 but fundamentally women want to date men that are as educated or more educated than them. So you have this ever increasing group of high performing women competing for an ever decreasing group of ultra high performing men, which mm. leaves a big chunk of women unable to get partners because there's a smaller number of men than there are women. And it leaves a sexless underclass of men that don't get really any look in at all. And the stats on this are borne out on Tinder. The bottom 80% of men compete for the bottom 20% of women and the top 80% of women compete for the top 20% of men. So this asymmetry I find fascinating. That's that's one interesting thing that I have in my head at the moment. So a lot of episodes have been dedicated to that. Chris, we're coming in for a landing, but I've got to quickly ask you, have you been to, uh, well, okay, let me just broaden it. Have you been to the African continent? Yes. Okay, tell me more. Uh, I went to Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, Maybe one more. Definitely those three. Oh, but you haven't been down to my side. No. No, no, no. You're missing out. What's there? Tell me what's there. Why should I go? Apart from the <laughs> dodgy music and the <laughs> two groups of people that don't speak to each other apparently and don't interact. Have you been have okay. you done shark cage diving? No, no, that would probably be on the bucket list as well. Great whites. Lots of them. In front of you there's a crystal ball. What do you see? something to be worried about i think that things are going to get a bit worse before they get better unfortunately um and then at the end of the century perhaps an artificial general intelligence comes in and just ruins it all but in the meantime i think that people just need to try and take as much personal sovereignty as they can the most the more personal sovereignty and agency that you have the better um and then it means that you can survive whatever onslaught's coming. But yeah, man, I really wish that I wasn't ending the episode on such a Debbie Downer. However, I don't see I don't see too much coming that doesn't require everybody to be a little bit more prepared for poor discussions online, vitriolic comments, disintegration between groups. Um yeah, it's uh it's a weird it's a weird time that we're living in a very 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 weird time well why don't you give me something uplifting the way that you've come into this world whoever it is that's listening to this the way that you came into this world was with a bunch of defaults right most of those defaults as far as i can see are absolute fucking horse shit they're like the factory settings on an iphone that are just rubbish Right? It's the way that you dealt with your past traumas and the, the friends that you've had around you from school and all of the people that you really, really don't want to take your values from. But the beautiful thing about this type of iPhone, the one that you're running in your head, is that you can rewrite your own code, that you get to decide that you're built for more, and then you get to change yourself based on what it is that you want to do. 
and this is the thing it doesn't really matter if the world goes to absolute shit because the difference between somebody that makes their own choices that has high agency that decides i'm built for more and i want to do more with my life that is that puts you in the top 0.0001% of people on the entire planet how can that not blow your mind that the vast 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 majority of people are just non-player characters that go about their day and mm. all that it takes is a tiny little bit of work from you in order to live a life which is wildly different to the one that you're that you're having right now or the one that you could have in future so i think that you know if there's one reason to like really get up and, and continue to work you are getting toward the stage where people's new year's resolutions might be resetting a little bit as well like you can construct a life that you're genuinely glad that you lived that you're genuinely happy to be in and it'll make the world a better place so whatever bad things it is that chris and his crystal ball have predicted every single step that you take that moves you a little bit closer toward a better version of you is also going to make that future a little bit less shitty as well and even if all of the worst things in the world happen it's going to protect you and the people that you care about from any of the things that go on so you know take agency over your own life have some sovereignty you'll be okay and norman says that i must remind you that uh south africa has the highest bungee jump in the world oh shit that's a good reason forget the sharks man <laughs> i want to bungee jump bungee jump down into the shark tank come back out before they can get me yeah my wife and i are going to the kruger national park in a few months time which is a very big uh one of the largest game parks in the world it's bigger than israel holy shit <laughs> dude where do you live why do you live on that avatar place what was that avatar planet come back come back to work <laughs> Fucking hell. if people wanted to follow you where can they go so modern wisdom on apple podcasts spotify wherever else that you listen to podcasts chris williamson on youtube or at chris will x wherever else you want to follow me and if you want to get started with the podcast try the jordan peterson episode just put Jordan Peterson, Chris Williamson in, and it'll come up. Get started with that. It's a really, really enjoyable one. You had a lot to, a lot to say, and it was a very meaningful conversation. So, yeah, get started there. Thank you for for joining me in the trenches. Me too, my friend. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare. I love ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.